All right, Mark chapter number 5 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 21. Now, we're going to read two groupings of verses in this chapter tonight, and we're going to do that intentionally because I want us to keep our focus on one particular story, one narrative that's given to us. Look at verse number 21. The Bible says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. When he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, I want you to notice this, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged. I want you to look down with me at verse number 35. And I'm going to talk in a moment about why we've skipped over those few verses. But verse 35 says, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken... He saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. When he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and saith unto her, Talitha cumi, which is, being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. I want to read one verse again, verse 39. It'll be our text verse tonight. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, we covet your presence and power this evening. ask that you take control of this service tonight, Father, through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know when the Spirit of God is in control, it's not out of control, but it's in spiritual control. So we just ask, Father, that you gain glory through his work tonight in hearts. Father, you know what each heart needs. And we just commit it unto you, Father, as unto a faithful Creator. And Lord, we just trust that you have a desire to meet with us tonight. Help us to be on meeting ground, Lord. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to absorb the truths that you've given to us tonight. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. But Lord, in in all things, we just ask that you glorify yourself. Father, we love you tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read just that phrase that the Lord speaks in verse 39 when he says, Why make ye this ado and weep? Now, Mark chapter number 5 is probably one of the most phenomenal and fascinating chapters in all the Word of God. As you read through the fifth chapter of Mark, it just seems like miracle after miracle. God intervening in a mighty way in people's life. Do you know that's what God does? 
I mean, I know that may seem basic, but we've got a God that intervenes. I mean, we've got a God that's real. We've got a God that cares. We've got a God that pays attention, that looks at our life, that knows what we need, that meets our needs. That's the kind of God that we've got. I mean, not just anybody can say that, friend. I mean, we don't have to go through a priest other than our great high priest, who's our brother and and the Son of God and uh, who we have fellowship with and who walks with us and talks with us. We can talk through uh, to the Lord through the name of Jesus Christ. Now, our God's not distant from us. He's interested in our lives. In this passage, of all the miracles, I think this is probably the one that is dealt with the least. You'll also find in this passage the healing of the maniac of Gadara. I believe it was last Wednesday night that the missionary preached and talked about the maniac of Gadara. And in the midst, almost what we would call a parenthetical narrative. You know what that means, just something's kind of stuck in the middle where you wouldn't expect it to be. A narrative concerning the woman with the issue of blood. That's why we skipped over those few verses, and we'll touch on that here in a moment. Uh, but what another remarkable miracle. This woman that had had an issue of blood, and Christ made her whole and healed her. But it seems like, I guess because this particular narrative is, uh, is broken up in a sense or interrupted by the healing of uh, the woman with the issue of blood, sometimes we don't give it much attention. I'd like, if I could, to preach to you, and I'm interested by that little word, ado. I guess we don't really use that word a lot. But if I could give you a theme for the message tonight, I would say uh, that this message is this thought. Much ado, but Jesus isn't through. Do you know that a lot of times we jump the gun in our attitudes and our actions? It's easy to feel like Christ isn't on the throne. I mean, you know, I, I trust me, and I know you could say trust me too. You've been in situations like that. And it's easy sometimes to feel like heaven is closed, the throne room is inactive. It's easy to feel sometimes as though the weight of your problems are crushing around you and you cry out to the Lord. He's not answering when you expect Him to. He's right on time, He's just not on our time. And it's easy sometimes to look at it and say, Lord, it's all going downhill. Father, it seems as though you're not there. That's the attitude we see in these people. Before Christ had ever finished the work that He was doing in their life, they had already written off the work of Christ as insufficient. Do you know that Christ is sufficient in everything? I mean, listen, listen carefully to what I'm going to say. He wouldn't have saved you if He couldn't keep you. I mean, stop and think about that. Is there anything that Christ ever lost? In fact, He made this statement. He said, All them that my Father hath given unto me have I kept. He said, Save one, but He was a devil from the beginning. He said, I've kept them all. Christ don't save you unless He can keep you. And everyone that He saves, He can keep. And everyone that He keeps, He keeps because they've been saved. He's able to work in our life. As we study this passage, I'm going to try to be brief and I'm going to try to be uh, less thorough tonight. Let's put it that way, less thorough. We'll see how that works. But I want us to notice first off in these passages, we see a promise. In fact, we see a promise that is un. Wavering. Look again at what it says, and we'll just read these four verses in verse 21. When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. Let me pause there and say this. He was an unlikely person to be coming to Jesus Christ for help. I mean, you can tell this man's broken, because being who he was, he wouldn't have been caught dead with the Savior unless he had a great need. Sometimes those needs that we're so anxious to get rid of are tethering us to the throne room of grace. And that's what we see in this man's life. He was not benefited in a political or in a religious sense or in an outward sense by coming and seeking the Savior's help. But let me tell you something, friend. When you really get in desperate need, you'll go where you need to go for help. 
I, I mean, we've, you know, we've kind of joked about it from time to time. In fact, I was hearing a, uh, a preacher or a pastor in Knoxville got a radio commercial about it, and he talks about having a conversation uh, with a woman and say, you know, why don't you go to church anymore? She said, well, you know, somebody hurt my feelings, and I got mad, and I left. And he said, well, have you ever got your feelings hurt at a restaurant? Well, of course I have. Or at a ball game? Well, of course I have. Or at your work? Well, of course I have. Well, did you quit there? No, I went back there. But we do that with church. And I think that's common. We've all seen that before. People get their feelings hurt and they get out of church. And sometimes it's not even getting their feelings hurt. Uh, sometimes they just get out. That's easy to do. Listen, getting out of church is the slipperiest slope that the devil can put you on. Because when you get out of church, it gets easier to stay out of church. And before you know it, uh, it's been weeks and weeks and months and months. Uh, but you know why we let that happen? We let that happen because we don't realize how much we need it. That's why. I mean, the reason that a fellow may get cross with their doctor and go back to their doctor, you know why? Because they need that doctor. You may get cross with the Walmart. I get cross with the Walmart every time I walk in there. I mean, how insane is it? Have you ever seen every register open at a Walmart before? I don't know what they're expecting to happen one of these days. But one of these days, I guess they're going to open all of them. I mean, it is madness. You'll be in there, and there'll be literally like 45 registers down through there, and two of them open, and they're on opposite sides of the store. And it just doesn't make any sense. But we still go back. Why? Because they have things that we need. When we sense our need, we'll go where we need to go to get the help. That's what we see in this man's life. Listen to what he says about his daughter. The Bible says when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. In other words, it wasn't just a light request. He had a big problem. Saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. Now, I want you to underscore that if you underscore in your Bible, because that tells me that this man is at a crisis point in his life. We talk about a crisis a lot, and we just think of a crisis as a dire situation. But really, the definition of a crisis is the thought or the idea of when two places or two ideas meet at an impasse. That's really what a crisis is. A crisis is when two objects or two ideals uh, that are absolutely uh, mutually exclusive of each other, they meet at a place, and a decision must be made. And that's the place that this man finds himself at. There's no time, there's no room to wait. His little daughter's at the point of death. There's no time, there's no uh, room to go anywhere uh, where he's not going to get the help he needs. His little daughter is at the point of death. And this man makes a decision in this moment that he's going to go where he needs to go to get the help that he needs. He's at a crisis point. Have you ever been at a crisis point? I mean, I think a lot of times the problems we have in life, we really have about six or seven options a lot of times to get out of. I was, uh, you know, I was talking to someone today and I was talking about someone that, that has trouble and struggles with money. And, uh, you know, when, when things get tough and when things get tight, they get worried and they fall to pieces and it's a problem for them. And, uh, you know, I was talking about that person. And I said, you know, it's easy to be judgmental when you're not in that position. You know, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, and, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't ever really worry about starving for a lot of reasons. I mean, I don't have a track record, a track record of it for one thing, but... I, you know, I know I've got family. I've got, if our pantries were empty and our refrigerator was empty, I've got friends, I've got family. I've got places I could go. I've got things that I, I, I could uh, implement and things that I could do. I mean, it probably takes a long time to eat through what we got, amen? But, uh, you know, that's not really a crisis in the sense of a crisis. Even if we were low on money and didn't have food, there'd be options, there'd be places we could go. But have you ever been at a real crisis point where all of your resources and options were expended and exhausted. That's the place this man finds himself at. 
He's got a big problem. But it's not just a big problem, it's a burdening problem. I mean, it's a problem that can't be avoided. Something has to be done. Look what happens. He talks to the Lord and he says, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray thee. I like that use of the word pray. That brings it into our understanding. Because even though he was looking face to face with the Savior, and even though he was talking with the Lord audibly, uh, it still doesn't change the fact that you and I have that, that same intimate communication with the Son of God. Just as we pray, we can be just as effective, and it can be just as effective in our life as this man as he stood face to face, eye to eye with the Savior. He says, Come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Now look what it says in verse 24. Uh, by the way, always notice... The silences in the Word of God, they're important. We have no response from the Savior as far as uh, a dialogue. The Lord doesn't say, now He may have said something, and the Holy Spirit didn't allow uh, Mark to record it. We don't know. All we see is the action. Isn't that interesting? The man's request is immediately met with an action. Uh, You've heard this said before, and I believe there is truth to this. People say, when you pray... You ask God to do it. You may not see the answer right away, but it's on its way. Have you ever heard that before? I've heard that. Do you know that answer is on its way before you ever even do pray? It's how sovereign our God is. He knows what we're going to pray. He knows when we're going to pray it. You say, why why does He have us pray it? He has us pray it so that He can get to glory. And that's the means, and it builds our faith and our strength. Prayer does a lot to change us, and it's important and vital in our lives. But this man's request is met immediately with action on the part of the Son of God. Notice what he does in verse 24. And Jesus went with him. Much people followed him and thronged him. There is an implied promise in this verse. It's not stated. It's not spoken. The Lord doesn't doesn't, uh, audibly say, I'm going to go with you, or at least we don't know it if he did. But immediately he responds with action. That tells me two things. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. His promise, number one, was unconditional. Do you know there's some conditional promises of God in the Word of God? Uh, There's some things that God says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. If you don't do this, I won't do that. If you study the history of the children of Israel, you'll find a plethora of conditional promises and conditional truths. I mean, all through the Word of God, and as they would backslide, the Lord would say, if you'll repent, then I'll intervene, or if this will happen, then I'll do this. And and time after time, conditional promises. But let me tell you something. I thank the good Lord of heaven that there's some unconditional promises too. Some things that the Lord has said, I'm going to do it not because of who you are, but because of who I am. Not because it's going to benefit me, but because my grace will bestow it upon you. There are some things that God has promised us, and we could spend all evening. But let me just give you a couple. Let me say that the security of our salvation is an unconditional promise. If we've been saved, we'll always be saved. It's not in our hands. The Lord paid the debt at Calvary. All we need to do is accept it, and it's laid to our account. There's nothing we could do. I've given this illustration before, but, you know, you hear, there's a lot of smart elks in the world, you know. (laughs) Maybe I'm one of them, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you'll hear people say, well, you know, the Bible says no man shall pluck him out of the Father's hand. And that's true. And then you'll hear some, some fella trying to be smart and trying to be intellectual say, well, what if I want to pluck myself out of his hand? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard people say that before. The problem with that, the book of Isaiah says that the Lord measured the universe in the span of his hand. I did the math one time, and I, I've not got it right in front of me, of how many miles, it was mind-boggling how many miles they project the universe uh, to be across. 
Uh, it, it would take, I mean, literally thousands and thousands, probably millions of years if a man in a, in a spaceship was to try to travel from one end to the other. And I heard one preacher say it this way, if you want to, go ahead, but you better get started right now. That's a big hand to try to get yourself out of. Listen, the Lord doesn't lose those that He saves. And we could go on down the line. I believe that, that the bare provisions of the needs of the saints are an unconditional promise of God. David said, I have been young, now I am old, yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. The Lord has promised, not necessarily all your wants, but all your needs. He said, I'll take care of those. Everything that you need... I'll meet. I'll take care of it. There's a lot of things we think we need that we don't need. (laughs) But everything we truly need, the Lord says, I'll meet that. Could I say that the presence of the Lord, at least in an explicit way, is an unconditional promise of God? He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He didn't say if you behave, if you're good, if you shout, if you're quiet, if you cry, if you don't. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake. These are unconditional promises. And the promise that was implied here was unconditional. God has promised that He would do what is for our good and His glory. Now, boy, that's huge, friend. I mean, I know, I know sometimes these things get abstract if we're not in the storm. And the boat may not look too helpful until the waves start to rock and to reel and to crash. But it means something if you're in the midst of a storm to understand that God is going to meet your needs. It's not based upon you or what you do. Uh, Christ, as soon as this man came and asked for the help, the Lord was going to give him the help that he needed. He didn't say, if you do this or if you do that or if you do this or if you do that. He said, I'll go with you. I want you to notice, number two, that not only was this promise unconditional, but it was unconventional. Uh, The Lord was going to answer this in an unusual way. I'm not going to take all the time to uh, try to explain the meaning of it uh, for two reasons. Number one, we don't have time. Number two, uh, it still baffles me in some ways. But when our Lord uh, uses this terminology, Talitha Cumai, uh, which being interpreted uh, says, I I say unto thee, arise. When he says that, that's one of the handful of times that our Lord used Aramaic in the New Testament. Uh, he's not using Hebrew, he's not using, uh, of course he would not have used Greek, but it's not being uh, written in Greek, but that's one of the few times that an Aramaic phrase is used. It was an unconventional thing that took place. I I don't know why it is that it happened that way. I could assume, I'm sure, uh, but I know this, Jairus being a ruler of the synagogue, probably he knew how to speak Hebrew. The Lord answered, but he answered in an unusual way. Do you know that sometimes God intervenes in a way that we're not expecting whatsoever? I'm thankful God does that sometimes. I'm not going to say it don't make me nervous sometimes, but I'm thankful He does it sometimes. Because it teaches me this truth. I don't have to always understand God for Him to be in control. We can try to map out the ways in which we anticipate or expect or prefer for God to intervene. But at the end of the day, friend, He's God and we're not and He's in control and He can meet the need. And He may do it in an unusual way. You say, well, you know, I prayed, I need food. He may send it by the mouth of the raven. You may not be expecting it. You may not prefer it to be that way. But He'll always meet the need. We go down the line and talk about unusual ways that God has met our needs. And I promise you, even in this small group here tonight, uh, that we could have a hundred different examples of ways that God, in a supernatural way, met a need, and in an unexpected way, met a need. We see the promise that's given here. But I want you to look down at verse 35. We see a response of some people. Now, this is not Jairus' response, but this is the response of those 
that are surrounding him. I want you to notice that we see not only a promise that is unwavering, but we see a pessimism that is undue. Look at verse number 35. The Bible says, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, we know who this is being spoken to because of the context of it. Uh, whenever he speaks this, he's speaking obviously to Jairus because Jairus was the one that would have gone and summoned Christ to come and to intervene. And let me say, essentially what they are saying is this. It's too late. Your prayers have gone unanswered. God has not intervened. And there's nothing that can be done. But you notice, first off, they were discouraging. Let me tell you something, friend. If you let them, there's people in this world that will discourage you into the lowest valley that you've ever been in in your life. You better guard yourself against people like that. I mean, I'm not saying we need to be, uh, you know, undue optimists. I believe we ought to be realists. I mean, I believe that. I, I believe we ought to be realistic. I'm not saying we need to go around, have happy thoughts all the time. How many of y'all remember Norman Vincent Peale? You ever remember that name? Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, they, they say, my old preacher used to say, the way he dies, he, he had negative thought one day and just couldn't handle it. <laughs> But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm not saying that we need to have rose-colored glasses. All I'm saying is this, that, that pessimism can be a soul-crushing attribute. We've got a good God. We may have a bad situation, but we've got a good God. We may have a big problem, but we've got a bigger God. You're always going to have people in your life that are... And it's always in the time. You notice Job's friends didn't show up till he was in the ash pile. They didn't show up when everything was going. They didn't show up when, when all of his kids were there. They didn't show up when the livestock was doing good. They didn't show up when the house was looking good, when Job was in good health. Isn't that always like company? They show up at the worst possible time. And he didn't show up, but they didn't show up at that time and say, Well, Job, I just want to come by and tell you how much we love you and we're praying for you and look how good God's been to you in your life. But the second that the bottom fell out of his life, here comes his friends, so-called. Friends with friends like that, you don't need enemies. They gathered themselves around the ash pile. And they sat for, I believe it's seven days, and said nothing. That was the best thing they could have done, really. Or sometimes you don't need to try to fix somebody's problem. You just need to let them know there's somebody else sitting in the ash pile with them. But you know what they did? They started to look at him. They started to try to fix him. They about fixed him into an early grave. And they started to look, and they started to criticize, and they started to get pessimistic, and they started to, to drive down his faith and his belief. I, Job, I don't believe, was a spotless man. I don't believe he was a perfect... He was upright, and he eschewed evil, but I don't believe he was a perfect man. I don't believe he was sinless. You can look at his uh, dialogue through the book of Job, and you can see some things. You can nitpick if you want. Uh, but I believe that Job truly had faith in God. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth for all of the trials and for all of the flames. Job said, there's a lot of things that I can't figure out. But I know God's still alive, and I know He's on His throne, but there was voices that were whispering to Him. Job, you're in this mess because you messed up. Job, you're in this mess because God don't care. Job, it's your fault. Job, it's your problem. There's times when our actions do bring problems upon us. But listen, friend, most of the time when people are sitting in an ash pile of depression and discouragement, nine times out of ten, they don't need to be reminded that it was their fault. Isn't that true? I, I mean, they don't need to be reminded. They know it was their fault. They need to be encouraged. We see their pessimism. They come along and say, it ain't going to do no good. It ain't going to do no good. never going to happen. never going to happen. never going to happen. Your daughter's dead. What are you bothering the Lord for? Well, I'm thankful he'll show up four days late sometimes, even when we don't expect him to. I'm glad that he has a timetable. That's not our timetable. 
Notice first off, their attitude was discouragement. There's a progression that takes place. Now notice this, because this will help us in our lives and in our attitudes. Began with discouragement. First they were just discouraged. First they said, well, it's hopeless. Well, there's no point. But I want you to notice next we see that they're distraught. Look what it says down in verse number 38. Uh, the Bible says, uh, verse number 38, And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. Typical sermon scene, or sermon scene, <laughs> maybe one of mine. Typical funeral scene. Typical funeral scene. The problem is Christ never showed up to a funeral and didn't break it up. Typical funeral scene. But the problem was they weren't going to bury nobody that day. Christ showed up. And they began to be distraught and beside themselves, what we would call in hysterics at their present situation. I want to be try, try to be very careful. Everybody's different, you know. And there's some people that react and respond in problems in different ways than others. There's some people it's cathartic for them to express themselves emotionally in a situation. I don't want to belittle that in any way. But listen carefully to me. Sometimes being distraught can paralyze your faith. Sometimes being distraught is a result of your faith already being paralyzed. If I could use the terminology that I would use if I was the Lord, we better be glad I'm not, but... What the Lord said when he comes in, essentially, is he says, Hush up. What are you crying about? I'm here. I'm reminded of the psalmist. When the psalmist spoke of his own soul, and he said, Why art thou quieted within me? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why art thou disquieted within me? What the psalmist says is he takes his emotions, he puts them to the side, he looks at the Scripture, he rejects his emotional inclinations in light of the truths of the Word of God. And he says to his own soul, what is the soul? The soul is the seat of the emotions, is what we would call it, or the consciousness, sometimes we'll call it the heart, but it's the consciousness, it's the awareness, it's our thoughts, it's, it's our perceptions. And he steps outside and he looks at himself and he says in a sense to himself, he says, why are you so quiet? God's still in control. Why are you allowing this attitude to prevail in your heart and in your life? And he's saying this to himself. Why are you disquieted? What could quiet the praises that God deserves from you? You may be in the valley, but he's the God of the valley, just as he is of the mountain. Why are you disquieted? Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's telling himself to bless the Lord even when he doesn't feel like it. Now, you may call that disingenuous or dishonest. You may look at that and call that silly, but that's Bible. That's Bible. They're in hysterics. And the Lord reminds them of His presence. We need to be careful. And again, I don't want to stand as any man's judge in this matter. There's been people... Listen, there's been people that have been through things and, and, and weathered them uh, like a boulder. I mean, like the old oak tree. Situations that I would have been in pieces if I was in. So please don't, don't assume that I'm being judgmental in saying this. But listen to me. We need to be careful lest we allow our uh, distress and our distraughtness to rob God of His praise and to rob us of our faith. They were in this situation, but the problem is they didn't realize that Christ was not done yet. 
You may be in a rough situation, friend, and there may be things going on in your life nobody in this room would even believe. But let me tell you something. They may not believe it, but God knows it. And they may not can understand it, but God can identify with it. And there might not be anything that they can do about it, but God can intervene. Don't, don't go to pieces before you let God put the pieces together. Don't go to pieces before God has moved and has worked. And most of the time you'll find there's nothing to go to pieces over. I'm not saying your problem's not big. I'm saying your God is bigger. That's what I'm saying. We see a pessimism that's undue. And I want to show you a final thing and I'm going to hush. I want you to notice that we see a power that was just unbelievable. Look at verse number 40 with me. I want you to notice what Christ does in this situation. And they laughed him to scorn, verse number 40. We could talk for hours about that. Don't get nervous. We won't, but we could. But when he had put them all out, you know, the Lord has the ability to quiet those discouraging voices, whether they're outward discouragement and whether they're inward. Sometimes it's inward. Paul talked about that. He talked about fightings without, fears within. I remember hearing a preacher talking one time uh, about starting a Christian school. He was up in Michigan. He was in kind of a what you'd call a graveyard of independent Baptist churches. And it was difficult to get a work going up there. And he was starting a school. He was preaching on the voices of fear out of Nehemiah. And he said, we started to start this school. And he said, we, we poured footers before we had ever really hired anybody or any teachers. He said, we'd, we'd take teachers that we'd be interviewing and bring them out. They'd say, can I see the school? And we'd bring them out. We'd, we'd point at the footers, say, there it is. And uh, they were hiring people, and he, he, said, uh, he said, I would lay in bed at night. He said, and I, I would lay on one side, and the devil would say to me, say, you're never going to start that school. You're never going to start that school. There's no way you can start that school. It's impossible in this area. It can't be done. Nobody else has done. He said, I'd roll over, and I'd hear the flesh say, yeah, you'll start it, but it'll fail. And he'd roll back and forth, and it was like a constant battle in his heart and in his mind. He said, we started the school. He said, we started out with 90-something students. He said, we quickly grew to 60. (laughs) He said, there was tough times, there was rough times, and there was times when it looked all bad. He said, but God was faithful through all of it, and he had a way to quiet those voices. That's what Christ does in this situation. Takes all those people that were doing their best to shake Jairus' faith in God and just escorts them out of the room. Only Jairus and his wife are left in there. And look what the Lord does. It says, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. First off, I want you to notice that he commandeered the situation. We use that terminology, commandeer, sometime, and you've probably seen it in movies or on TV where a cop will be, you know, there'll be a high-speed pursuit or something, and they'll run, and they'll wave down a car, and they'll say, you know, ah, you know, whatever, KPD, I don't know what it is, they'll say. They'll say, I'm commandeering this car. What they mean is, I'm taking this car out of your hands and into mine, because I'm going to do something with it what they're saying. It's what the Lord does in this situation. He says, I'm taking this out of your hands, Jairus. I'm putting it in mine because I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to do something with it. The Lord has a remarkable way of doing that in our lives. Problems that are so much bigger, so much vaster, so much deeper than we could ever handle. And the Lord sweeps in and takes hold of the situation, quiets the voices, draws us close to Himself. Notice He did not escort them away from the problem but he accompanied them into the problem. He didn't push them out the door with everyone else. He brought them in close with him. He wanted them aware that though the problem was not gone yet, that he was there and he was a part of it. Notice number two. The Bible says they took the damsel in his hands. We see that he commandeered the problem, but we see that he interfered with the problem. Or you might like the term intervened. He changed. He changed what was going on. 
He intervened. He changed the situation. I like that it says that he took the damsel in, in, in his hands. And you say, preacher, why do you like that? Man, those are the very hands. <laughs> those are the hands that, that would bear the prints of the nails. Those are the hands that, that formed the world. And you say, well, I don't know if I believe that. The Bible says all things were created by Him and for Him. Those were the hands that had flung the stars into space. Those were the hands that had formed this world. I mean, that, that was who had done all these things. And now, those hands that had tackled much bigger problems take in the problems of this man Jairus. Boy, it's a privilege. I mean, man, to know that those hands that have handled all those problems, those hands that bore upon them the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, will reach down to pick up our piddly problem that's so big to us and so unsurmountable to us, but to the everlasting arms and to the mighty hands of the Son of God, it's able, He's able, He can contain it, and He can commandeer it, and He can intervene, and He takes that problem in His hands. And He says to her, Arise, stand up and walk. Their whole lives were changed. The crisis is over because they've allowed it to be taken into the hands of the Son of God. They didn't allow. Man, it, it, it makes me almost proud of Jairus. Isn't that funny that we'd say that? But it makes me almost proud of Jairus that in this situation where everybody was falling apart, you know what he did? And you might not believe this, and, and, but I do. I, I tend to believe he kept his eyes on the Son of God in the midst of all of that. You don't have to believe that. You can believe something different. That's fine. I won't fall out with you. But you notice that whenever Christ spoke to Jared, he didn't have to get his attention. He already had his attention. I think he kept his eyes. I think that's how he kept from falling apart. When everybody was trying to get him to, and there'll be people that'll try to get you to, he kept his eyes on the Savior. And the Lord intervened in a mighty way. He says, get her something to eat. Isn't it good that the Lord don't solve our problems and then forget about them, Brother Ralph? He didn't just raise her up and then walk out the door and leave, but he, but he saw that this problem was, was sought to and her needs were met. Listen to me tonight, and I, and I know this is probably not the most dynamic message that I've ever preached, but listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You may be going through some things that are phenomenally big, huge problems in your life, and you've probably got some voices around you trying to get you to give up and get discouraged and quit trusting. What was the advice the Lord gave to Jairus? He said, only believe. Be not afraid. Only believe. Just trust me. Trust me. You sought my help because you trusted me. He didn't say that to him when he first came. He said that to him in the midst of all the discouragement and pessimism and people trying to shake his faith. He said, be not afraid, Jairus. Only believe. You trusted me once. Trust me now. Continue to have faith. Don't fall to pieces. Put your faith in me and allow me to intervene in the situation. Whatever's going on in your life, I promise you this, God cares. God cares. It's good to be able to make an absolute statement about that. <laughs> God cares. And I want you tonight, if God's spoken to your heart and in any way, and you may be at that crisis point, you may have gone to the Lord for help already, you may not have, but whatever your need is, tonight I encourage you, find a place at the, at the throne room of grace. And ask for the Lord's help. Put it in His hands. Let Him commandeer the situation. Let Him take control of it. And allow God to intervene. I promise you He will. He always does with our heads bowed.